Welcome to the Awakening Podcast Network. Get ready for an inspiring audio from this cutting-edge voice. You can find more podcasts at awakeningpodcasts.com. You want to go deeper? Get equipped to overcome and walk in God's purpose for your life at Awakening House of Prayer's online campus. You'll experience an online family, preaching, teaching, and prophetic impartation for victorious living. We have over a thousand members online hungry for what God is saying and doing in the earth. Visit ahop.online today and join our family. AHOP TV empowers believers with spirit-inspired messages and strategic equipping that accelerates your spiritual growth. You can subscribe to stream weekly content from Awakening House of Prayer, conferences, and other exclusive content to stir your hunger and encourage your heart. Visit us online at ahop.tv. Track with me. I'm going to talk today about some of my secrets for abundant life. And I'm really, you know, I made a few notes, I wrote down a few scriptures, but I'm really just going to speak to you from my heart. You know, you can have a bad day and still have an abundant life. You know that? You can have a bad season and still have an abundant life. Amen? You can be going through a trial and still have an abundant life. It's possible in Christ. But one of the secrets that I've learned, because Jesus, when he walked the earth, he made it very clear that the enemy has a threefold ministry to kill, steal, and destroy. That is his ministry. That is what he is best at. He is an expert. He is a master at killing. He is an expert at stealing. He is really good at destroying people's lives. I've seen it being a deliverance minister. I've seen it. I've seen it over and over and over how the enemy keeps people in bondage half their life so they're miserable. They don't know how to function. It's dysfunctional. How many of you know some dysfunctional people? And they love the Lord, but they're dysfunctional. They're not functioning in the abundant life. Jesus didn't die so we could just barely get by. Jesus didn't die so that we could be up and down like a yo-yo or up and around and around and around like a roller coaster. Jesus came to bring stability into our life. Jesus came. He said it this way. I came that you would have life. Being miserable, being poor, being sick in your body is not the life that we are supposed to live. It is below our means. It is below our inheritance in God. Jesus said, I came to give you life. Listen, he died on that old rugged cross to give us that life, to create a pathway into the life of abundance. Now, I'm not a prosperity preacher I'm not here to give you some ear-tickling scripture candy twisted and taken out of context as to why you should never have a rough day. I'm having a bad week, but I'm still living an abundant life. Amen. Many of our staff have been sick this week. We're having a bad week. How many know when you don't feel good, it ain't a good day? Amen. It's a good day in Christ. Jesus said, I came to give you life in abundance to the full, and Amplified Bible says, until it overflows. I want my life to overflow onto the next generation. I want to be that bridge that, that's a mediator between the elders and the younger so that there's no uh, uh, schism and an impartation. Listen, your life means something. But when we walk around miserable, depressed, discouraged, that is not the life God has 
died to give us. So I just want to share some of the secrets that I've learned for living an abundant life. And today I'm just going to share one because it's more than enough. And that secret is intimacy with God. Intimacy. Intimacy. And you have to pursue that. God has pursued you. Before you were even saved, the Holy Spirit pursued you. He, he wooed you to Christ. He pursued you. Now it's our turn to pursue him. He's a gentleman. He brought us into the kingdom, and he is waiting now for us to respond. He will speak to us when we speak to him. Not only, but oftentimes he's the one that starts the conversation. You know, I came out of a church, and many of you have heard me say this, where it was warfare, 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 warfare. There was never one sermon on love, not in the eight years I was there, that they ever talk about the love of God. Not one time. It was always our dominion. It was always our kingship. It was always our authority. It was always our position as a warrior. It was always intimacy, intimacy, int uh, uh, warfare, 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 warfare. And what happens is, is that if you, all you do is fight. See, that's what the, <laughs> that's what the devil wants you to do is to always be back on your heels, just fighting, resisting, putting all your strength into resisting instead of putting some of that strength into pressing past the resistance into the presence of God. There will be a fight. There will be resistance to you pressing in. But this church I came out of, it was warfare, and I'm grateful. Listen, to a certain extent, I'm grateful because I know how to fight. But listen, I submit to you today that you are not fully equipped to do what James 5 and 8 says. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You're not fully equipped to do that without a revelation of intimacy. So I know how to fight, but there were certain battles that I never could win. There were certain skirmishes, certain wars that I just never could seem to win because I was missing the understanding of intimacy. Because it's, listen, it is in that place of intimacy where you get your battle strategy. Look at the life of David. David was a worshiper. He was a psalmist before he was ever a warrior. Before he ever took out his Goliath, he sat in the wilderness places and wrote songs, love songs to the Lord. And then came the bear. And then came the lion. He learned how to fight, but he fought out of that place of intimacy, knowing. Why do you think? Let me submit this to you. Why do you think that none of the other Israelites in the army even considered taking on Goliath? I submit to you today that part of the reason is because they didn't really know their God. They knew of him, but they didn't know him the way that David did it. Because David knew his God so well. He was so intimate with his creator that he knew God had his back. That he knew that if God led him to the battle line, God would give him the strategy and God would give him the victory. So I'm grateful for my time in a warfare church. And, you know, we're a warfare church, but we're an intimacy church. We're a deliverance church, but we're a healing church. You know, we believe in all facets of the gospel. They would call it the full gospel in the old days. All of it. I believe in all of it. But this intimacy is not something I learned until I left that church. And a friend of mine said to me, there's this thing called IHOP. I mean, have you ever heard of IHOP? I don't mean the breakfast pancakes place. I mean IHOP in Kansas City. And she says, there's this thing called IHOP, and they have 24-7 worship, and there's this great teacher named Mike Bickle, and you should really get in on that in this season of your life because you need a revelation of who God is to get through this time. And so I began to put on 
Misty Edwards when I would go to sleep at night and I, it would just play all night long and I would listen to Mike Bickle's teaching on the Sermon of the Mount lifestyle, turn the other cheek, give him your coat, walk the extra mile. You know, don't judge lest you be judged. Five, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the constitution of the kingdom. And I began to press into you know, rec- ser- uh, uh, truths about reconciliation and confronting control spirits and all these things, but out of the love of God. And it saved my life. That ministry saved my life. I don't think that I would be standing here before you today. I think I would have quit. I don't think I would have continued to minister. I would have stayed, I would have stayed saved. But I believe it saved my life. I'm going to be going back there in a few weeks to be part of a discerner team where Mike Bickle, the man whose ministry saved my life, has invited me to be on a special team to stand on stage before each of the last final sessions of one thing to release what the Lord is saying. I didn't ask him, can I be on your discerner team? He contacted me. That's like a dream come true. But how did I get there? I didn't war for it. I didn't even ask for it. I just surrendered to the Lord everything I am and everything I had. I set my heart toward intimacy And I pressed in over all these years. And am I perfect? No. Do I get angry sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. The Bible says be angry and sin not. Listen, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. He just expects our heart to be perfect toward him. And that will include intimacy. If we have a, listen, this intimacy will save your life. The Lord said this to me this morning. He said intimacy will guard you from many dangers in life and lead you into many joys in life. The Bible says in his presence, there is a little bit of joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. So if we're not joyful, it means somehow we have found our way out of his presence. If we find ourselves discouraged, we have found our way out of his presence. If we find ourselves in depression or in anger, that's not a righteous anger. We have somehow moved outside of his presence and we must find our way back in immediately before we hurt somebody else. Because hurting people always hurt people. Intimacy will save your life. In the last days, Jesus said, in the last days, many will be offended. Isn't that what he said? He said, many will be offended and even many will be offended at Jesus. Why? The Bible calls him the rock of offense, not the pebble of offense, the rock of offense. Many will be offended at how things come down in the end times. We've got so many arguments in the body of Christ about pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, no-trib. Jesus already came back in 72 AD. Jesus already came back in... All these controversies in the body of Christ, somebody's liable to be offended when they find out they have not believed rightly. When they find themselves perhaps in the middle of the tribulation, not the wrath, but the tribulation. What if we don't get out of here before it all comes down? Will we still follow Jesus? So intimacy will guard your heart because what, listen, none of us really know. Nobody really knows. Some of the most respected Bible teachers in the world vehemently disagree on when the Christ is coming back. Somebody's liable to be offended. Somebody's liable to be offended when their husband dies prematurely. Somebody's liable to be offended when their child is shot by a cop for doing nothing wrong at all. Somebody is liable to be offended. Come on, has anybody ever been mad with God? I've been mad with him three times. I had to get over it. 
when we're mad at God, we're missing his heart and we need to get back into intimacy. So how do we get into intimacy? How do we do that? You know, I went back and forth between like five messages this morning. I actually prepared several messages. I had one prepared last week. I said, nope, that's not it. I was going to talk about walking in the Spirit. Holy Spirit said, no, that's good, but that's not it. And about 10 minutes before I left, he said, do this. I said, well, I don't have any notes on that. He said, that's all right, I do. Hallelujah. So the first thing that we have to do is is understand Jesus' passion for us. Christ's passion for us. You know, this isn't a direct parallel, but it is an interesting connection. Kind of illustrates the point in a sideways manner. When I was five years old, my kindergarten teacher told my mother that I would be a writer when I grew up. And I could not stand writing, Christine. I could not. I hated it. I couldn't stand it. I would wait until after my term papers were due in high school before I'd even start. And I would get, you know, two grades marked off. The teachers gave me great favor. They knew I was talented, misguided perhaps, but talented. So they wouldn't give me an F. They would just mark down two grades. So I ended up getting a C. I would have gotten an A. But praise God, I still had a 3.8 grade point average, so praise God. But the point is, I hated it. I did not like writing. And then when I joined the, when I went to college, I had moved to a new city. And I didn't know anybody. And it crossed my mind that a good way to meet people would be to join the college paper. Because it's more, you know, social. It's more social. So I joined the college paper and my English professor, which she had to take English or I wouldn't have taken it. My English professor and my college professor, my journalism professor, got together and they were talking about me. And they came to me and they said, you have extraordinary talent. First of all, would you tutor some of these other kids? Second of all, we want you to be an editor on the, on the college paper. And I discovered, listen, I discovered that I didn't like writing, but writing liked me. I was dispassionate about writing, but writing was passionate about me. And when I found out that I was so good at a thing, I began to get passionate about it. It changed my perspective. And today I'm a best-selling author. My articles have been read by people in nations, every single nation of the earth, every single inhabited nation of the earth. But I had to understand that this was what God had for me, and I had to understand, you know, it's the same way in relationships. Sometimes, well, I know at least one of you in here that can relate to this. Sometimes, let's say, a young man pursues a young woman, and she doesn't really want nothing to do with him. She says, "Uh uh-uh, don't like you, not doing it, nope. I Just get on back now. I don't like you. Get away from me. I'm not ready for this. I don't want anything to do with it. But he keeps pursuing. And he keeps pursuing. And he keeps pursuing. And he keeps pursuing. And finally, the girl relents. You understand those kind of stories? Amen. That's how it is with Christ. When we understand his passion for us, we'll have a passion for him. We'll want to be in his presence. When we understand, listen, don't you enjoy being around people who really love you? You know that they love you. You know they're not going to hurt you. That's who you want to spend your time with, right? We have to understand that passion. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. First John 3 and 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that we are. First John 4, verse 10 through 12. This is love. <laughs> Want to know what love is? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he 
loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That's how much God loves us. First, first John four nineteen through 21. We love God because he first loved us. We didn't love him first. Many of us were running from him. I remember I ran from God. I didn't want anything to do with it. The only times I had ever went to church when I would know my parents were Christians per se, but they didn't ever take me to church. I went to a Presbyterian church one time on an army base. It was so boring. I fell asleep. And then I went to a Catholic church a couple times with my neighbors, and I didn't understand any of that. I mean, I'm not against Catholics. I think they're good people, but it, my eyes got burned with smoke and all kind of stuff, trying to even me to crack out of a man's hand. I just wasn't into it. Amen. Just wasn't into it. But I understood when I grew up and the Lord saved me that his passion for me was greater than I had ever realized. Romans 5 and 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have to be awfully passionate about somebody to die for them. But we need to meditate on these scriptures because it's this kind of revelation. It's this kind of, and yes, it's unconditional love. He loves us all the time. He doesn't always like what we do, but he always loves us. If any of you have kids, you understand this. You love them. I have a daughter. I love her. Sometimes I want to smack her because of the things that she does, you know, but I love her anyway, especially in those teenage years. Oh, Jesus really had to sanctify and consecrate myself during her teenage years because they just got this attitude. They're just like, you know, especially girls toward their mother. Mm-mm-mm. They just got this attitude that just won't quit. Romans 8 38 and 39, for I am, this is Paul talking, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I am convinced, and this is what we need to be, is convinced, we need to be convinced, absolutely convinced, We. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And when we really spend the time, and this is why IHOP so changed my life, is because they sing the word. And that is the fastest way to get the word in you. Why do you think the devil propagates through unbelievers so many songs about murder, death, destruction, because this is what he's trying to program in our minds. But the Lord is trying to program our words so that we see great gospel songs that have come out, hymns that were written hundreds of years ago that still touch our hearts. We're still in our hearts. The next thing we need to do is we need to see ourselves rightly because some of us or some Christians, and I see this a lot, don't feel as if they're worthy of God's love. Somehow they don't feel like they, or they're just not able, whether they realize it or not, to receive the love of God. And listen, if you can't receive the love of God, you cannot dispense 
the love of God. You can look at the love cycle really as a, as a circle. It starts up here. Here's God. God loves us. We love God. We love ourselves. We love people. See, because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to love your, it wasn't on the, yes, it was, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you can't love and if you don't love yourself, you will not love your neighbor, you will not love your husband, you will not love your wife, not the way that you should love. With the agape love, that is what we're after. The agape love, not the philo love, the friendship love. There's three kinds of love, three kinds of, three Greek words for love in the Bible. One is erotica, which is like a husband and wife kind of love. One is a philo, which is a friend love. And what is agape love? We need to move in that agape love. But if we don't understand what that is, if we've never received it, we can't move in it because you cannot give away what you do not have. So you have to see yourself rightly. And that comes by sitting in the presence of God and allowing him to wash over you and wash over you and wash over you. The Bible says, he washes us with the water of his word. And so what I did after I, listen, I've had to go through a lot of different trials in my life. I've lost a lot of people that I love dearly to deception of one kind or another. And I've always had to go back and get in the presence of God and let the water of the word and the presence of God cleanse me from resentment, cleanse me from pain. And if we don't do that, listen, if we don't allow God to cleanse us, because we will all go through, you know, it doesn't have to be a trauma. It doesn't have to be a tragic event of life for you to need to get in the, God, in the presence of God and be cleansed from the unrighteousness, not just your unrighteousness. See, that, that scripture is true. The Bible says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But sometimes it's other people's unrighteousness towards you that you need to get cleansed of. Sometimes a residue of resentment can build up in your heart, especially when you've been trying to do the right thing for a long, 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 long time. And the people around you just will not get in line. And they keep on doing the same thing to you and keep apologizing. You keep forgiving. After a while, resentment will begin to build up in your heart. And then you need to get cleansed from the unrighteousness they did to you because now you've taken it and internalized that unrighteousness in your own heart. And you got to let it go, but it has to be in the presence of God. This is where you get rid of this. It's not just a matter of saying, well, I forgive. That's good if you really mean it. But we're so conditioned as Christians just to, I, mm-hmm, yeah, I forgive them. Well, did you really? Because when you said it to me, you said it like this. Yeah, I forgave them. And this is not the right spirit. This is not the right heart. But unless we make that heart connect with God, we are powerless to do anything. Jesus said, without me, you can do Nothing. That means without his grace, we can't forgive. We can choose by our will, but he's the one who graces us to go through the hard times. He's the one who graces us to deal with the difficult people. He's the one who graces us. But I find that most people, it's that they're too hard on themselves. Most people will give other people more grace than they give themselves. They might not give people enough grace, but they'll give them more grace than they give to themselves because somewhere along the line, the enemy has come with a lie. The enemy has come with an accusation. The enemy has come with condemnation. But the Bible says in Romans 8, there, that therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And so when we're in him, there's no condemnation. And we have to see ourselves the right way because if we don't see ourselves the right way, we won't see other people the right way. We won't see God the right way. And the only way to get there is in that intimacy. And yes, that includes worship and reading the word. This is all in that package, that intimacy with it. You you need to know his word intimately. I remember when I first got saved, I marveled at how much scripture people had in them. And I didn't think I'd ever be able to know all that much scripture. But now I can stand here and and rattle it all off to you. I might not know all the the addresses, but I've got the word in me. How did I get that? Through meditation, but also through intimacy. People read the word all the time and don't, don't, (laughs) they're, they're readers of the word, but not doers of the word. And there's where they're deceived. But when you pair the reading of the word with an intimacy with God to where you really want to walk this out, you'll change. I used to have a wrong perception of myself because I was in this church that was warfare oriented and they were condemning. And if you didn't do everything right, you were blasted. You didn't get a second chance, much less a third chance or a fourth chance or a fifth chance. I had a wrong paradigm of myself. And one time I was down on my knees praying as I had the habit of doing. And I said, I was praying something along these lines. I said, Lord, I said, uh, you know, I, I'm so sorry that I haven't read the word long enough today. And I'm so sorry that I haven't, uh, you know, got in your presence enough. And I'm so sorry that I, I didn't pray enough last week. And I'm so sorry that I got upset with my daughter for coloring on my brand new sofa. I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry. And I was telling him everything that I wasn't. And he said something to me. He said, would you just stop? And I said, what? I'm praying. He said, no, you're not. I said, yes, I'm praying. He said, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. I'm praying. He said, no, you're not. I said, yes. Praying, kneeling, hands folded, name of Jesus. I am praying. He said, how would you like to listen to your daughter beat herself up every day? And I said, I would not like that at all. And he said, well, I don't like watching you do it. So would you stop? And then he said to me, go read Ephesians 1 and 6. And I didn't know what it said at the time, but I'll never forget now what it says. It says, you are accepted in the beloved. We are accepted in him. But until we understand those truths about how much he loves us and who we are to him, and even when we blow it, even when we blow it badly, He sees us through the blood of Christ. And if we'll run to him and repent, we can be restored in a minute. It doesn't have to take forever. (laughs) And that's the deception. People think, well, if I admit to the sin, there's a young man right now that I know of, and he is in grave sin and still continuing in ministry because he doesn't want to go through a restoration process because he thinks he'll lose his entire ministry if he does. You know, if you have to step back from ministry, not the whole world needs to know about it. You can step back and get restored in even two or three months. You really can. You can get right with God. But continuing on when you know you're broken, continuing on when you know that you have sin in your life, continuing on when you know that your soul is so damaged that you cannot behave correctly, it will destroy your life and those around you. It will bring strife. And the Bible says where there's strife, there's confusion and every evil work. So if you're in sin, and I'm sure none of you are, but I think there's one person watching on our online campus that's in sin. If you're in sin, run to the Father. Run to him. Run to him. Because he'll forgive you and he will restore you. The next thing you need to do is desire intimacy. You've got to desire it. 
You've got to desire intimacy with God. You have to desire it. David said this in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this only do I seek. This is his only request. He wasn't asking for victory in battle. He wasn't asking for more money, a bigger ministry, a new car, more children. He said, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. That's all he asked for. That's all he asked for because he chose the better part. Martha and Mary were together. Jesus came to visit their house. Martha was running around like a chicken with her head cut off, trying to clean the dishes, trying to prepare everything, trying to honor Jesus. Her heart was right. But then here comes Mary, and Mary is laying at the feet of Jesus, just intimate. Just laying at his feet, just loving on Jesus and him loving on her. (laughs) And then she started to complain about Martha. She's not helping me. Can't you see how overwhelmed I am with work? Can't you see? She's not helping me. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha. She has chosen the better part. There's a time to work. Listen, there's a time to work hard. But the listen, the lovers will always outwork the workers. The lovers will always outwork the workers. We have to get it straight. We have to get it right. This should be our priority. We have to desire it. If we don't desire it, we won't have it. There's a pastor down in Bogota, Colombia. And he's got a church of 45,000 people, and they meet three times a day. But it wasn't always that way. He had 40 people for years. He's got revival that's been broken out for 25 years. 25 years of revival. 25 years of sustained revival. But he had 40 people, 30, 40 people, and he was so wrought and he was so disturbed. He got down on his knees one day and he said, God, I don't understand. You told me to build this church. Why isn't it growing? You told me to raise up these walls. Why isn't it growing? This is your church. We've done everything. We've done the outreaches. We've knocked on doors. We give away food and clothing. We've done every church growth program that I can know of. And the Lord said, would you stop? And he said, why? I'm praying. And he said, You need to stop. He said, you need to stop counting the people. And you need to start looking at me. And so he got on his knees. That's why I'm not moved by how many people are here or how many people are not here. I go to to nations and 3,000 people show up. I go to different cities and, you know, 1,800 people will show up. No brainer. Here is a lighter crowd. Why? Prophets not respected in their own town, I suppose. But I'm not looking at numbers. I'm looking at the Lord. And I'm setting out to create an atmosphere where God feels welcome. And that might cause some people's flesh to feel convicted, (laughs) their soul to feel convicted. But it's all about him. So he got on his knees and he said, start looking at me. So he got on his knees every day for two, three, four, five hours. And it began to change him. He began to cry out to God. He began to understand the, the ways, the heart, the character of the Lord. And then one day he went to church as usual and he stepped out on stage and miracles began to break out everywhere. And that was 26 years ago now, 27 almost years ago now. And there's been consistent revival. I mean, you might call him like the Benny Hinn of Bogota, Colombia. It's it's very similar flow. 
people getting healed all over the place. I wept, I cried, I could not believe what I was seeing. But it came out of a frustration of knowing there is more and a realignment of his heart to stop looking at how many people were there and start looking at him. Because if we build it, listen, Rick Joyner has this book called Apostolic Ministry and I've been reading it. And the reality of it is, is that <laughs> we build churches, most of the body of Christ builds churches to attract people. That's why we have so many programs and I'm not against programs. But we're not doing, I think, enough many times to attract the Lord. And we could have a very small ministry where there's very serious power encounters every week with the Lord, where people's lives are really changed. And then those people whose lives are changed can go out and touch other people's lives. It's not all about the mega. Barbara Yoder told me that small is the new big. And I believe in the end of the end times, we're going to see house churches rise again, even in the United States. And all this mega stuff, listen, I'm not against it. I've preached in mega churches, okay? I'm not against it, but I think that without intimacy, not just with the Lord, but even with each other, without that family, without getting to know each other, without understanding that God has a bigger agenda than flashing lights, and I'm not against the flashing lights, don't get me wrong. We also have to do this, this is what I've learned, you have to invest time waiting on him. Many people get bored in the presence of God. The reality is we train our brains to be unfocused. I was reading a study this week because I'm, I, I study not just the Bible, but I, st- I read business books and things of that nature because I came out of the business world. I own three media companies. And I have to understand business principles to work with business people. I'm, my clients would be business people looking for marketing, looking for media. So I have to understand their world. And I was reading because I know that I'm not as focused as I should be. And I read something that I'd never read before about how we train our brains to be unfocused. This is why it's so hard for us to focus on the Lord, because we have our even in church. I don't think a church service has ever gone by where somebody's phone is not going off. Sometimes they don't notice it in time. I don't think I've ever been in a church service where somebody's phone, or people are, are, are looking at their phone, and now I'm, not, and I'm not talking about they're looking at their Bibles. Okay, I get that. We have our Bibles on our phone. That's cool. That's awesome. It's great technology. But people are on Facebook in church. They're not focused on God. They're focused on what so-and-so said or what so-and-so, or they're focused on some problem on Monday morning. But we've trained our brains to be focused by dividing our attention constantly, by multitasking. And I'm the ultimate multitasker, but I've had to learn in this season that I've I've got to reprogram my brain because we can sit in the presence of God and be thinking about everything else but God. And we want him to touch us, but we've got to be receptive. We've got to study his heart and his ways. I was in a meeting with John and Carol Arnott a couple years ago, two, three years ago. And they are the church that hosted the Toronto Blessing, the revival there. Heidi Baker went through there. Bill Johnson went through there. Like every major leader spent time there for a minute. I think Heidi Baker was, the Lord put her on her head upside down for like two days or something crazy. It's on her testimony. Go on YouTube. She couldn't move. They had to carry her to the bathroom and everything. She was like on her head. I don't know how the blood didn't rush to it, but I guess that's supernatural. I think about these things. They're practicalities. I figure she, you know. But the the point is, is that John and Carol are not. They were so hungry. They knew there were more. They had a good-sized church. Listen, I love this because they had a church, four or 500 people. Most 
Pastors would be satisfied with that. They would call that a success because, the, listen to me, the average church in America, according to the latest studies, the average church. Now, when I listen, when I say average, I mean you combine, you know what an average is, right? You combine the, the least with the most. So there are churches that have 25,000 in them. But the average size church in America is 80 people. That means that there's a lot of churches that are like 10 people. And they contact me for advice all the time. These churches that, but you know, it doesn't matter how many people are there. But this is what I love about John and Carol because they had a good sized church. They would have been way above average, but they wanted more. They were so hungry and they would get on their knees before the Lord and they would read the Bible together. They would study his heart. They would study his ways. You know, the Bible says Moses knew the ways of God. And it's no coincidence that Moses was also called one of the, he, he was the most meek man on the face of the earth. The more, <laughs> the more we know the ways of God, the more humble we'll be. And they studied and they studied and they would weep and cry together over the word, their, their Bibles being stained with tears. And they said, Lord, we want more. We want more. We know there's more. It wasn't about numbers to them, even though they had achieved the numbers. It was about presence. And then one day, Randy Clark came. And revival broke out. And now they have a church planting movement. Patricia Bootsma is a friend of mine. She came out of there and, you know, they've got, you know, churches now all over the place that put a premium on presence. We also need to dialogue with him. We need to dialogue with him. You know, you won't walk in the spirit more than you talk with the spirit. And if you're walking, if you're really walking in the spirit, you will have the fruit of the spirit to some degree in your life. If you're walking around and you're angry and you're bitter and you're judgmental, you're critical. You you know people like that? Usually the ones that are criticizing everybody else are the most wounded. Constantly. Well, I know what their problem is. Why don't we focus on what our problem is? Because the Bible says that we need to get the telephone pole out of our own eye before we try to get the speck out of our brother's eye. I think as a body, we like to bite and devour each other when we need to be lifting each other up and helping each other. The more we talk with God, the more sensitive we'll be to his spirit. He almost always waits for us to initiate conversation. Now, he may speak to our hearts at any time, but I mean conversation. And you know what he loves to talk about is his word. That's why I like to do what Mike Bickle taught me to pray, read the word while I am, while I am reading. I'll say, wow, that's crazy. How did you get Jonah out of that whale, God? And I'll talk to him about it. I'll talk to him like, that's crazy. How did that happen? Why was Moses the, what happened between Moses and Aaron? Because they were separated. Moses was put in a basket and Pharaoh's daughter called for a nursing mother and he grew up in Pharaoh's house. But then later on, after they were both grown, Aaron and Moses came back together and kissed each other on the, on the cheek and, but they hadn't seen each other. How did they know who they were? Like, Lord, did they like stay in touch? Like, I'm, I'm curious. It's called being biblically curious. We have to spend time with him. We have to, to, to talk with him like we would talk to a friend, not with, no, I say that. Some of you don't talk to your friends that nice, so maybe that's. We have to talk to him like, but with reverence and holiness, respect, but we have to talk. He is, Jesus said, I am the friend that sticks closer than a brother. So we have to talk to him, we have to dialogue 
with him like we would dialogue with a trusted friend that we respect. Dutch Sheets wrote this, um, it's really a devotional. And I got it a several years ago. I'm going to buy it for you. It's called The Pleasure of His Company. It changed my life. And I, I sent him a text. I said, Dutch, this, this book, it changed my life. It's, it's just maybe six or seven pages a day. <laughs> and he talks about being a friend with God. He talks about the pleasure of his company, how to develop an intimate friendship with God. And I was listening to him speak one time long before I read this book. I've still got it. I'm going to read it again as a matter of fact. Because it makes you hungry. When you're around people who know God, you get they make you hungry, don't they? When you're around people that understand who God is and they speak of him and his glory and his power and his presence, it's like, I want that. But the reality is that it takes time. I asked Dutch, I said, Dutch, how did you get this revelation? Because he speaks as one who is a friend of God. And this revelation, he said, Anybody in the body of Christ can have, but he said few will press past their flesh or their distractions to get there. He said, it's available for all people, but it costs you something. He said, it costs you time. And there's all times where we need to, to rest and even sometimes rest from reading the Bible. I know that sounds strange, but... I came off of a major conference, and I've come off of a year of travel, 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 travel. You know, I like to watch documentaries and stuff like that. I don't like to watch trashy things, but I like to watch certain things that are, you know, TV shows that are clean and stuff where there's no commercials. That's why I like Netflix, is you can have a clean TV show, but they put all these horrifying commercials in there. So I get Netflix so that I can watch clean things without any nasty interruptions, and I just, you know couple nights ago, just, just rested and just watched, like, just got my mind off everything. That's healthy. But you can't live in that. You can't live in Netflix binge. You can't live in La La Land. You can't live in escape into fantasy world and playtime. You have to know there's a season of work and there's a, there's a time to work and there's a time to rest. But it does take time to get that intimacy with the Lord. You know, and after I did that, I've been resting most of the week. I did some work. But I've been resting most of the week. Sickness was trying to attack my body. I was fighting it with everything in me. Everybody else on the team got slammed. I wasn't feeling well. I was feeling exhausted. But it was because my body was fighting it so hard, you know. But after I spent those days resting, I came up with several ideas that I needed to come up to, with creative solutions to that I could not seem to crack the nut. And it was like two weeks from now is the deadline. And after I took that rest and just got away from everything and everybody, it took my mind off everything and everybody, all of a sudden these ideas came to me just like that in a minute. And it's brilliant and it's going to work. Amen. But sometimes you have to do that. But you also have to take that time with God. This is why I get up at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning. I started doing this because my kids at Charisma, when I was editor of Charisma, they would come in at 9 a.m. And my prayer call was at 6 a.m. And I had to get in the presence of God before the prayer call. And I had to have time to get a jump start on them so that when they got to work, they would have assignments ready. So I learned that if I wanted to spend time with God, I had to make it a priority. Matthew 6 and 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. And so I had to understand and know 
that if I didn't see, I chose a long, long time ago, long, long, long time ago, long, long time ago to put God first and to give him the best part of my day. Productivity experts will tell you that we really only, listen, we really only focus six hours a week. Isn't that crazy? And they say the most focus you have is in that first part of your day. So I'm giving God that first part of my day, which means I'm giving him the best part of my focus, the best part of who I am, the best part of what I have, because I learned that if I wait until the nighttime, I'm too exhausted or I'll forget. Not because he's not on my mind, but because somebody else is pulling on me. So we have to be those people who dialogue with him, who speak to him. I just felt my spirit jump. And the next thing we have to do is worship. And there was a time when I was writing that devotional mornings with the Holy Spirit and evenings with the Holy Spirit. Or I, I would just, when I wasn't traveling, I'd be home on a Saturday and I would just spend five, six, seven hours a day in worship and just writing down what I heard the Lord say. And those are both best-selling books. But I also became a much nicer person in those seasons. The more time we spend with God in his presence, the bolder we are, the kinder we are, the more loving we are. And worship is one of the greatest outlets because he deserves all of our worship, all of the time. Amen. How many believe God always keeps his promises? Amen. God is good. I hate to stop a service like that. Some of you need to just stay on for the second service. You know, I... I'm going to take up an offering because offerings are an extension of worship. And I want a congregation where the people are debt-free. I myself am debt-free. And I want to read you a scripture before you prepare your offering. I want you to hear what the Lord says. In Philippians 4, 15 through 19, Paul said this, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. Amazing. This was the only church that was supporting Paul at that time. He, this was his this this was his his key partner. You know, my ministry has partners. Awakening House of Prayer has partners. That's how we survive, really, is on our partners from around the world. Because our congregation and populace isn't large enough to sustain the the budget of this but we have partners around the world so I can relate he said even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessity not listen not because I desired a gift but I desire fruit that accumulates to your account because I have everything and abound I have been filled having received from Ephaphroditus the things which were sent from you like a sweet fragrance an acceptable sacrifice it's talking about giving now an acceptable sacrifice somebody say sacrifice, sacrifice. well pleasing to God but my but then he said this but my God shall supply every need all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ but who understand and know who was Paul talking to because I have to say I believe with everything in me that God is our provider but he has taught us in his word to give some Christians, if you look at the studies, most Christians give about 3%. They don't tithe. Their tithe and offerings together equal about 3% of, of an income. And they expect God's best. But when we don't give God our best, we can't expect to get His best. Paul was talking to the sowers. And many people quote this wrongly. But we have to look at Galatians 6 and 7. In Galatians 6 and 7, 
The Bible says, God shall not be mocked. Whatever a man reaps, that will he sow. So we understand that our reaping, our harvest, has to do with our sowing. But here, let's go just a little bit further. 2 Corinthians 9 and 6. Paul said this, But I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. So every time you sow, you're going to reap. But if you want to reap abundantly, you got to sow abundantly. It says, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And if you want to live an abundant life, one of my secrets to living an abundant life is to sow abundantly. And I've done that. I've done that as a ministry. I've done that as a house of prayer. I've done that in my own life. We must sow according to the purpose in our heart. But if we're stingy, if we're greedy, we can't expect to receive God's best. There's a couple, how many ever heard of Kenneth Hagin's ministry, Rama Bible School? They were there in their church and the man of God spoke to his wife, his true story, and said, you know, I really am believing God for $200, a $200 a week raise because we just... We're just barely getting by, and I know this is not God's will. And so they, he told his wife, let's sow today and believe for a $200 raise. Sure enough, they, they tithed, they gave an offering, and within several weeks, he got a $200 week raise. Now, this was back in the 70s, and $200 was a lot more than what it is today. So he said, wow, God is faithful. This concept of sowing works, and even naming your seed, it works. So he says, well, Lord... I'm going to believe for a $500 raise. The Bible says he can do exceedingly above all we can think or ask. So he said, I'm going to sow a seed, Lord, and I, you know, I want to give more into missions. See, his motive was right. I'm going to give more. I'm going to give more. So he sowed. He said, Lord, I, I want a $500 raise. Within a month, he got a, a $500 a week raise. And he said, well, I'm, this is almost too good to be true but God is good he told his wife let's believe for an $800 a week raise and within several months as they sowed their tithe and their offerings they received an $800 a week raise wow. the reality of it is is that we can't outgive God and you can never go wrong giving I just held it my first international conference and the Lord had me to sow to the speakers more than I had budgeted to sow and especially to James Gall, who is a real papa in the faith. I hadn't planned on giving him that much money. It blew my budget. Absolutely blew my budget. You know, when you run a conference, you're not doing it to make money. That's not the purpose. That's never my goal. You're there to minister to the people. You want to treat the other ministers well, but you don't want to go $10,000 in the hole doing it. You know, yes. you got to be smart. You got to be a good steward. But the Lord said to give this and this and this. The Lord had me to fly another young man in impromptu just because he needed to be there. It was $1,000 for the ticket. Last minute. He had me bring in another speaker last minute because they needed to be with us at that conference. And it blew my budget. But you know what? <laughs> I've learned over the years that you cannot go wrong in giving. And it may have blown my budget in the natural, but I know that I know that I know that I'm about to receive a blessing that I cannot contain. Amen.
So when you look at your giving, don't look at your budget. Look at God and ask him what you should give. If you look at your budget and you let your budget dictate your life, you're going to miss out on God's best because God will swell your, your provision to go over and above abundantly over your budget. So I want you to ask the Lord today what to give. And I want you to be obedient to the Lord. That's all I'm asking. We're obedient to come here. And, the, you know, the electricity alone here is like almost $2,000 a month. And most people that come here don't give enough to even cover the electric as combined. But I'm not looking at the people and I'm not looking at a budget. I'm looking at God. And if I can build a community that will look at God, then everyone's budget will be met. Amen. So, so today, according to what the Lord says and according to what's in your heart, not into an electric bill and not into mammon. If you need a check, if you need a envelope to use a credit card, you can lift your hands. If you're using text to give, you can use that. I don't know if that's up on the screen. It's not. It's, I don't even know the number. So don't, you can't use text to give. I don't know the number. Online, if you're watching online, there's a button there you can give. Pastor Austin just put the text to give up there if you use that. Online, there's a button there on the online campus for you to give. And remember, God loves a cheerful giver, so we're going to start a new thing. We're going to come smiling and happy and dancing like we expect a harvest. Hallelujah. Yeah, hey. Yeah, hey. <laughs> Hey, come on. If you're writing a check, make it to AHOP, A-H-O-P. This has been a production of the Awakening Podcast Network. Jennifer LeClaire is the founder and owner of APN. Our heart is to inspire people and exalt Jesus with every broadcast. We're grateful for our advertisers and supporters that make these podcasts possible.